Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I am so excited for this episode with Randall Deggs, who is the head of developer relations and community at Sneak. How's it going? Hey, what's up, John? Thanks for having me, man. Pretty excited to be here. So I will do my best. I'm excited to have you here. So I like to start with every guest going way back in time and hearing about your origin story. So Mm. how did you get started in tech and end up where you are today? Well, I've been programming since I was a little kid, and I'm sure you have a lot of these stories of guests on your show, but the way I personally got into it was growing up, we didn't have a ton of money, but when I was younger, there was a family in like a similar organization as ours who donated an old DOS computer to us. And so, you know, my parents got it and plugged it in at the house. They didn't know anything about it. And I started playing around on it. And there was only like three options when you booted the computer. I remember there was like, you know, settings for like the system. There was like command line, like terminal. And then there was Wolfenstein 3D, which was preloaded on this thing. And, you know, of course, the third option was the most appealing one. And so I played the crap out of Wolfenstein 3D, got super into it and absolutely fell in love with video gaming and computers. And my mom was a librarian growing up. And so after school, I would always go to the library and kill time until she was done with her shift. And I would just read books or, you know, whatever stuff interested me. And someone mentioned that you can actually write hacks for video games to like get superpowers or do other cool things. And so I literally went into the computer shelf at the library, at which point there was very few books on computers. And I picked up the very first book I saw, which was on programming and scheme. And so took that, went home. I literally opened the book. I read the preface, you know, I went to page one and it was like, hello world program. And I literally opened Wolfenstein 3D and started typing the code that I saw in the book into the Wolfenstein 3D app, because I figured that must be how to do the cheat code thing. And man, it did take me an embarrassingly long amount of time to figure out that programming is actually not putting text into a video game, but actually putting things into a file and saving it and running it. That's how I got into it. And I've been a huge fan of programming ever since. And I'm just addicted. You know, it's funny. I have a really similar like core memory where I was like trying to use Perl or something and make like a website that did something. And I could not figure out where you put the code. You know, like I used to go to websites, you fill out a form, it does something cool. I was just like unable to create that because I literally couldn't figure out where the text goes from this book I was reading. It's really funny. And that experience has dramatically shaped my life in a lot of ways, because I always remember that amount of frustration. Like I literally went to the top of the page and I reread everything and I was punching in over and over again. I thought I just missed a character and it was like a cheat code or something, you know? And if I did the right way, it would work. And it taught me an important lesson, which is you really have to explain things from the beginning up whenever you're teaching anyone anything. Like you can't make a lot of assumptions about your audience. There's a lot of ways that comes into play with the topic we're talking about today, but I think it's really important that when you are teaching people things, you're crystal clear, you provide a lot of background and context and just give people all the information they need and don't leave out even things you think might be simple or assumed. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. Very true. So 
as a kid interested in coding, where did you make that leap from I love coding to the security world specifically? Because like, in my mind, it's like such a different community and niche from general software engineering. Yeah, I mean, in my case, the way it worked was a bit of a jump. So when my family got the internet, you know, we had AOL like everyone else and dial up stuff back at the time. I found my way into IRC chat rooms. And that was the primary way that I sort of like met other people in the tech scene and learned things. And I honestly can't remember how I stumbled into IRC. It was probably just tracking down stuff through searches or whatever it was. But I ended up on the Freenode network in the C programming channel. And, you know, through offshoots and my noob questions there, I got invited into some other channels. And one of them was like a security group. And the people there just felt very like similar to me. You know, we were all like sort of like, kids ish like you know early kids teenagers people in their early 20s who are like still sort of like forming their views of the world and becoming better programmers and things like that and the part that i thought was interesting is a lot of people in there were really into lower level security things and so i sort of naturally just took that on myself and i got really into it it led me down the path of running linux on my uh operating system. I formatted that DOS computer and ended up putting Linux on, which pissed my parents off big time because everyone else in my family like couldn't figure out how to do literally anything on the computer. But all those experiences over those years got me into it. And I eventually went from not caring at all about programming and just caring about video games to getting really into programming to eventually just going down the rabbit hole and getting really into operating systems and the way packages work and how those things are built and what a kernel is and how to exploit things, you know, looking at like all sorts of silly vulnerabilities that script kitties would just fall in love with. And I eventually got into programming operating systems. I worked on the OpenBSD operating system for a number of years as a contributor. And just a lot of those things really just molded my experience. So I got into it purely from the aspect of it's really fun to learn new things. And security is one of those areas where the more things you know, and the more context you have, the better you are at it. It's really a game about just knowing a lot of obscure low-level facts. And if you know enough of them, you can look at systems and find interesting ways to interact with it that most people may not think about. And so it's just very appealing. This is kind of a tangent, but do you think that when we were growing up on IRC, that everyone there was a teenager. Cause like I have friends that I made 20 years ago on the internet who are my age. And like, I didn't really process at the time that we were all like 13. I have no idea, but my oldest friends to this day who I know in real life and I've been to their weddings and stuff are people I met way back then in IRC and we were all kids. I never asked their age. So I honestly had no idea. I've only learned that since becoming an adult and like actually meeting a lot of them in real life and things, you know, but yeah, it felt like, you know, the early nineties, like mid nineties was a great time to sort of be a kid on the internet because there were so many people learning things and sharing things. And it just had this like real cool culture where people weren't, you know, really concerned with money or business or anything. It was purely just interest. And I think that's what drew me into it so much and really shaped my own personal views and just sort of like my career and all the things that I love to this very day. Yeah, 100%. So to get back to like the work that you do, one of the things I was kind of surprised by is you're talking about like operating systems and, you know, really low level stuff on how computers work, but you didn't actually get a college degree. So like, 
when I hear about people doing operating systems, they're like PhD students, like studying like some weird esoteric, like, I don't know, like driver or something. I don't even know what they study. But like, do you feel like you have been able to build the same level of knowledge doing it yourself that people get in like an operating systems course? Are there differences? Like, how has that actually played out? So that's a really good question. I mean, I'm hesitant to answer directly because if I told you the answer was yes, I think I have an equivalent education, that's probably a really ignorant response, right? Like I can't really compare what I've done in my life to people who have gone through years of education and studied super hard and put all this work in. I mean, I'm just going to assume they're a lot smarter than me and know a lot more stuff. But with that being said, I think it really depends on what you're interested in and what you're trying to do. And I wish I personally would have thought about that when I was younger, because the way my life sort of unfolded when I was younger is, you know, maybe around 11, 12 years old, I got into programming. Fast forward a few years, I was a reasonably decent programmer. Like I could build a lot of things. I had open source projects. I was like an active community participant before ever getting out of high school. Fast forward to the end of high school, you have to make a decision what you want to do with your life. And for me, my aspirations were always very academic. It was like, I'd love to get a PhD in computer science and the best programmer who ever lived or something along those lines. So I applied for comp sci schools. I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz. And when I was there, I tested out of a lot of my early comp sci classes because I had a lot of experience in it. And when I was in high school, I did some AP and community college classes, which helped. But then as I went more down the university track, what I realized in my first year or so is that after I did the comp sci classes and I had a lot of GEs and other things to complete, I couldn't have find the willpower to force myself to finish them. Like I remember taking a, you know, music history class or something like that for the easy GE credits or whatever it was. And every review on ratemyprofessor.com said, this is the easiest class of all time. And I was like, that's what I need. Like I need something easy so I can just focus on programming and building stuff in my free time. And then I remember going into the class and taking it and being like, oh my God, this is so boring. I literally cannot find the willpower to focus on this. And so I just flunked out of these GE classes and it was really hard. And I floundered for that first two-year period after finishing my comp sci classes where I was just doing these other types of things that were required to move forward until I realized I can't do this. And so I dropped out. And at the time I was terribly embarrassed. You know, I had to go back home and live with my parents. I felt awful, like a huge failure. And it wasn't until I, you know, applied for some jobs and got my foot in the door at a tech place that I realized, man, if I would have thought about this first, I probably would have skipped the whole college thing and just done the things that I liked. And I've told people this before, but in my particular case, I think I was a better engineer before going into university than I was leaving university because I had so many things I was building and so many things I was doing. And for me in my particular you know, position, I think university just wasn't something that clicked well with me and I probably would have been faster without it. So how do you like to learn about other things? Because I know you like you're not like the kind of person that can only talk about computers, right? So like what is your style of learning and why is that different than what you experienced in university? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've always heard this saying, I forget where the origination is, but people say that humans generally learn in one of three ways. They either learn through reading, they learn through listening, like with their ears, or they learn through seeing, you know, like visually, like people want to watch a video, maybe. I'm the type of person who learns a lot through reading. And so for me, my preferred form of learning has always been reading a book and then building stuff myself and just experimenting. And 
that's true, like both in an academic sense, like I read and I still read a ton of programming books and technology books and stuff just for fun. But also I really get a lot of joy out of taking those things that I learned and like building something real with it. And for me, 99% of the fun of programming is actually just shipping something. And so I have this like internal compulsion to like take things and build something stupid, even if it's completely useless and just throw it online. And so I've had a lot of those experiences and I feel like for me, it works really well. That's awesome. I've definitely heard about those three learning styles before and it comes up a lot when I'm talking to like DevRel folks because they're like, oh, like when we make our tutorials, you know, there's like a written component and a visual component and a video component and whatever it is. How do you sort of like bring your educational experience into the stuff that you're putting out there for other developers? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of opinions about this for sure. One of the things I have learned, though, over the years, because I've been doing DevRel now for, I want to say like 10 or more years at this point, it's been quite a while. Before that, I was like a CTO at startups that I was sort of like a part owner in and things like this. So it's been a lot of things over the years. But the thing I learned the most in DevRel is that because everyone learns differently, you have to diversify your portfolio, just like you would with your finances. You can't have all your money in Enron stock, right? Like maybe they were doing great back in the day. That's probably a very dated reference. I can't think of anything closer, but you know, whatever it is, you have to diversify. So what that means is for our programs at Sneak, when we're building educational content, which is one of the primary ways we grow as a business, like our service is meant for developers to use to help find security issues in their projects. And so for us, a core part of the business is like teaching people how to do these things, right? And that means we need to have a lot of really good tutorials that cover these things in a lot of depth. It means we also have to have really good videos that go on YouTube that people can find. So people who are like more video learners are going to find it that way. It also means you have to have really good courses, potentially books. Like there's a lot of different mediums that you have to tackle. And, you know, what I would say is for DevRel in particular, the simplest way to get started is to do this in terms of written content, like a blog. Like have a really good blog. It's super authentic. It does the things we talked about before, where when you're explaining subjects, you're very comprehensive. You take a very beginner focused approach and you explain everything so that there's no doubt in the reader's mind that they can figure out what they need. And that's self-serve in the sense that you don't need to click through and read a hundred different things to get the information. If you land on a page, you ideally want the experience to be that by the time that person gets to the bottom of the page, they know what they need to know and they can bounce out of there. We can talk about metrics and stuff later, but that's one of my personal pet peeves is when in the education space, we sort of put a lot of value on bounce rates because, you know, sometimes marketers will say, yeah, we really want to lower our bounce rates. We want to make sure that when people are landing on a page on the blog or these other places, they're going to other parts of our website. And that's a little bit contradictory because in an ideal world, if you're doing a good enough job educating people, it's a one-stop shop. You don't have to bounce around necessarily. So there's a lot of these little niche things you sort of learn over the years, but yeah, it's definitely varied for sure. Do you think that the balance is off with how many DevRel teams integrate marketing metrics into their work? So after doing this for a while, I would generally classify DevRel teams in a few different like buckets in my mind. On one hand, you have very marketing-focused DevRel teams. And generally speaking, the way I sort of see marketing-focused DevRel teams is that what they're primarily focused on is doing events, maybe speaking programs, and building a lot of presence. And the reason I sort of classify that as more marketing focus is because it goes back to these old school marketing concepts from like the 80s and 90s about how many touches you get 
with a particular person before they remember you. It's what like large companies do today when they're thinking about advertising for Coca-Cola or Pepsi or whatever, you know, they're like, we need to put ads all over this place and people will hear our name enough that it just sticks with them. The problem with doing the marketing approach is A, it's really expensive to do that, first of all. And B, it's sometimes really hard to quantify. Like there's certain parts of it you can quantify really well, but it's difficult in a lot of ways to show value there. The second type of DevRel org is a very engineering focused DevRel org. And sometimes when we're talking about that, people think that we're talking about, you know, just having DevRel people, the interface between a product team and a customer and taking the customer's concerns and relaying it to the product team to help them prioritize the work they're doing and triage things here and there. But that's also not really what I mean. What I ideally mean by an engineering focused DevRel org is one who's actually building and shipping products maybe not the core product, but things that are tangential to the core business and that are going to attract users organically to the main business. At Sneak, for example, we have one of our most popular projects of all time is something called Sneak Advisor. By the way, if you're not familiar with Sneak and you go to sneak.io slash advisor, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But it's essentially a service we built that is, again, not part of core Sneak. It's a separate thing. But what it does is we pull in a lot of open source packages and ecosystem tools we run them through our security scanning tools to do a lot of comprehensive analysis. And then we use a number of other heuristics to determine how healthy these open source tools are. And that's something that's very relevant to the types of people who want to use Sneaks products themselves, and it's complementary. And so some DevRel teams are actually doing engineering work to build these complementary things. Maybe it's open source libraries or tools or whatever it is, but that's another really important component. And then finally, there's the hybrid approach, which is where you take elements from both of those things and do stuff. And obviously in a good team, you want to have a good balance between all these different things, but it's just really important to have a pretty good understanding of where you want to go and what the most important thing for your company is. So you're going to do the right thing, basically. I mean, Sneak Advisor, like I know you describe it as a engineering thing, but it's brilliant marketing, right? Like the idea that someone might discover Sneak by using this tool is real, you know, like, I think that perhaps it wasn't launched as a marketing funnel, but I can only imagine it's really, really effective at at marketing to developers. Oh, yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's responsible for something like 35% of Sneak's entire top of the funnel business is coming from this tool that we built out. Which is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's a ton of opportunities for that. I've done a lot of advisory work with different companies over the years for DevRel and engineering stuff. And there's so much value you can drive with some of these like complementary tools that it's just, I find it really interesting. It's like almost a whole art and discipline in and of itself. Yeah, hundred percent. Though I do have a gripe that I wish it supported Ruby. Yeah, that, don't worry, it's coming. We got tons of stuff on the roadmap. And yeah. as a DevRel person, I will take that request, John, and I will talk to our product team and I will make sure that, that they know John G himself has requested Ruby. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I'd love to talk a little bit about like sneak DevRel in particular being in the security space because my stereotype of security people from when I was an engineer is that they're like hiding in a like lock cage in the basement talking about scary stuff and that I should not bring a phone near them because it might get hacked, right? And like, I recognize that's like a cliche and it's like very hyperbolic and it's like not really true. But then also, like, when you go to DEF CON, they say, bring a burner phone. But, like, it's always felt like a totally separated culture to me. 
I know there's a lot of shared skill sets and interests, but like the culture of security and the culture of software engineering feel really disconnected. I'm curious, like, who are you working with at Sneak? How do they overlap and how do you talk to those different audiences? That's a really good question. I'll do my best to answer it. So first of all, let's talk about security culture for one second. Security culture is really diverse in the sense that, yeah, there's like a DEF CON part of the culture, which is very much like focused around the hacks and the cool ways to attack different systems and showcase things. That's one part of it for sure. Then there's like a whole part focused on cryptography, which is very academic and it's more process oriented and people are involved in mailing lists with lots of government officials and all sorts of things to define these standards with NIST and all this. It's much more rigorous and academic than people might think. Then there's what I would consider like general application security. And this is what most developers are sort of familiar with. It's when you're working at some company and someone on the security team once or twice a year will occasionally ping you and say, hey, John, I noticed that there's a, you know, a vulnerability or potential issue in this file that you touched like two years ago. Can you go in there and just fix that for us for compliance purposes? And I think that when you're talking about developer security overall, most developers think of it as that latter thing. They're like, oh, it's just an annoying thing that like I have to think about every now and again. It's not something I specialize in. I don't put a lot of thought into it. It's just like sort of annoying to me. And that is the exact sort of persona that Sneak is really trying to target for the most part. It's your average developer, people who aren't security experts, who probably don't care about security at all, but they care about their craft. They want to build good stuff. They want to build performance, safe systems, and they're willing to use tools to help them achieve that. The way I personally think about Sneak, because my background as a developer, like I didn't always care about security. It was something I sort of learn to enjoy. But the way you should think about using tools like Sneak or security tooling is it's just complementary to development skill sets. It's like using a linting tool or you know having uh, CI stuff in place. Like It's just something you do for good hygiene. And if you learn to incorporate those basic things into your workflow, you become a much more productive engineer. You be, start writing much more valuable code for your company, for your projects, whatever it is. And you know it goes a really long way in making you a better engineer, I think. Yeah. For anyone listening, like, I think probably the way I got introduced to Sneak is we were doing a Sneak workshop at a lot of our hackathons. And so I was like playing around with it, testing it out. And the thing that was like really striking to me is how similar it felt to like every other linting or like error output tool I had seen. You know, like I ran my code through it. I got a bunch of like recommendations and output. And I was like, oh, I can like figure out how to fix this. To me, at least like, as somewhat of an intermediate level engineer, right? Like it was very self-explanatory what I needed to do with that information. And I was surprised because like I've done CTFs and stuff in the past. I did like the Stripe CTF back in the day and it was like really hard. And there was all this like weird niche knowledge. And this felt like perhaps one of the more accessible introductions to security that I had seen where it actually made sense and was written for like a human and not a security expert. Well, thanks. I appreciate you saying that. It's really helpful to hear the feedback sometimes too. But I mean, for those of you listening who've never heard of Sneak, by the way, just so you know, you can sign up for the service for free and use it. And basically what we do is we analyze your code, your open source dependencies, your containers, your infrastructure's code, whatever it is you're writing software for, Sneak will analyze it in real time. If you plug us into your editor, your IDE, whatever you're using, you can also plug us into CI systems, CD systems, stuff like that. But basically 
we look at stuff and we say, hey, John, that line of code you just wrote that's like taking this user request and you know running a SQL query, you didn't properly sanitize that input. And so you're opening yourself up to some security issues. Here's a better way to write that code. It'll also look at your dependencies and say, hey, there's a known vulnerability in not the dependency you're using, that dependency is pulling in recursively a few levels down. And so here's the proper way to fix that by upgrading this intermediary dependency or whatever. So it's just a very comprehensive, simple way as a developer to like level up your security chops without knowing anything about security is like the TLDR. Yeah, hundred percent. So I'm curious, like the human accessibility part of it that I'm talking about, like is your DevRel team responsible for that? Because I remember, at least in the example we did, part of the workshop directed you to read an article about one of the things that struck me when we were doing our workshop together is that as you ran the sample code through the sneak like analyzer or whatever or linter it led to this like really in-depth article about prototype pollution and i remember reading it and thinking like this is kind of unlike what any devrel team has to create generally like you're usually not having to explain fundamental technical concepts to your end user and i'm curious like how you approach that because it felt different than other stuff i had seen before there's a couple of different ways so that workshop you're in particular referring to was from last year. And the reason I know that is because the way we do it now is actually slightly different. And that's because our approach evolves quite a bit year over year. In the past, the approach we took was we said, okay, we have this tool and we're showing people when security issues arise. And we're trying to give them the information they need in at the time that they need it to fix an issue themselves. And so we would take a lot of information and context and then build these interactive lessons that we could link people to where it shows you in depth, like, hey, this is a prototype pollution issue in JavaScript. Here's how it happened. And here's examples of how it can be abused. And here's what you specifically need to do to fix it and why it's important. We still have that today, but we've also gone a step further. And nowadays, we've, you know, our AI stuff has progressed quite a bit. And so you're actually able to generate fixes automatically for a lot of these things that have already been validated by Sneak's internal security analysts. And so we have. You know, we're not using like LLM stuff to do this. We actually have our own symbolic AI things internally that are, you know, much more accurate, I would say, than like just general, you know, LLM stuff. But irregardless of how it works, the important thing to know is that we've tried to simplify it so that ideally the people using the tooling don't need to know anything at all. They just say, hey, there was a problem here. We fixed it. And if you want to learn more about that, here's a link where you can go explore it. And that's where we have the in-depth explanations. So we're moving more towards that sort of a model because we feel like it's a better experience for people. And you know, we obviously want to empower them, but we also don't want to bother them. So if they don't want to learn about security, they don't even need to worry about it. Who's responsible for creating those in-depth like education guides? So there's two groups. There's the DevRel group here, which creates a lot of it. And we also have an amazing team called the education team that we work closely with. And the education team has a few different groups under them, but one of them is our sneak learn team. And they build this entire learning platform, a lot of comprehensive learning lessons. DevRel works really closely with them to build these things out, review them and get them published. And today there's a ton of them and it's a very successful part of the company overall. That's really, really cool. So like, it's nice that the platform, you know, comes in and says like, Hey, like, here's what you need to fix. Like, you don't need to know that much great, you know, easy, I can continue with my day. When you're going out to events, right? And when you're like, speaking, and when you're putting on, you know, different developer community building activities, 
how do you convince someone that they should even care about this? Because we talked much, much earlier in the conversation about how a lot of developers are like, oh, that's not my department. I don't think about it. So how do you actually bridge that gap and get them into the security mindset as a general software engineer? There's a couple ways. It, it varies a bit. Like, for example, when we're giving talks at public facing conferences and events, we often don't come in with a direct pitch. We're not trying to convince people to care about security. What we do instead is we show them a couple of interesting pieces of code or applications, and then we show them how innocuous looking code can actually cause all sorts of havoc if you don't necessarily know some of the weird security stuff behind the scenes that makes everything work. And we call these stranger dangers. It's like a very popular like talk style thing that we give. We have it in a lot of different languages and all sorts of variations and things, but they've been super popular conferences for a number of years because developers who are just interested in building good systems recognize through these talks how crazy interesting security can actually be. And so it's a fun way to introduce the concept to people who like are not at all familiar with their domain and probably just don't care about it. It's just building interest and passion. That's one way. The second way we go about doing this outside of like convincing people to care about that is we approach it from the other direction. And it's really more of a like conversation about, you know, why should you like security? But it's more about how do you build good quality software that your company is going to allow you to publish without having a lot of headaches going back and forth in internal processes. And I can tell you from firsthand experience working as an engineer at some other companies, a lot of developers care about that, especially in the enterprise segment, you know, like there are so many developers who, no joke, will get pinged by a security team or an internal process team or whatever it is about code they wrote years ago, months ago, whatever it is that they've completely moved on from. But now they're getting a lot of internal harassment to get these things fixed because maybe they didn't use security tooling up front and it's coming around to bite them in the butt. Or maybe there's other problems that are happening in the business that are related to security incidents. And now it's a lot of work for you as a developer to jump in and save the day. And so it's a great way to avoid pain and to just improve the quality of the software you're building overall too. I feel like there is certainly a bit of a, I don't want to say trendiness, but like there's a focus on security right now, you know, like in open source, everyone's talking about S bombs and like all these different like ways to improve the security of open source software after the many different vulnerabilities that came out. But like, from your perspective, like, you know, when we look at these like changes that people are trying to implement policy wise with how software is designed and distributed versus the stuff that you're talking about, which to me feels more tactical, like how individual developers have a security first mindset. How do those two things play together? There's a lot into it. I mean, to be totally honest, the way I saw the change was going back into like, you know, was it probably like the mid 2000s when the Edward Snowden leaks were first classified and there's all this interest in, you know, the NSA listening into American citizens phone calls. That in my mind is the single incident which really kickstarted security to like the forefront of like the general population's mind. I can't remember a time before that when people really cared nearly as much. And ever since then, there's been a focus on encryption and private communications and just things that the general population will care about. So I think that's what really kicked it off. And what was the second bit of that question there? I mean, I think the second bit of the question was basically, you know, some people are approaching it from a policy perspective, right? Uh, like you need S-bombs. And you're, it sounds like Sneak's philosophy is more like, 
empower developers to have a security first mindset, how do those two things play together, right? Because they're pretty different um, approaches. That's really the key value that Sneak has over all of our competitors and other tools in the market, really. And it's our main driving philosophy, which is two things. First of all, you can't do everything in one area. It has to be a cross-functional approach. There is no way to design secure software if only developers are using security tooling and building stuff on their own. It's just not possible. The scope nowadays of building things is way too broad. You have too many pieces of infrastructure. You have too many systems and vendors and all sorts of things. So you can't just give tooling to developers and assume it's going to fix the problem. Similarly, you can't put all the responsibility on a security team in a company. Security like managers and AppSec engineers and people like this at these larger organizations, they run a lot of security tooling as their day-to-day -day job. They prioritize like what incidents they need to respond to, and they work with different people in the organization and get them fixed. That's sort of how it goes. And it's also not fair to put it all on them and say, hey, these people, you know, there's only a few of them at this big company, but like they need to fix every security problem and like get it into production. That's also not reasonable. And so nowadays the way it works, and I think the ideal way for it to work is you have to have good tooling and good communication on both sides of the house for sure. You basically have to have some sort of process that a security team is responsible for instrumenting. I heard you mention SBOMs, like Software Bill of Materials. It's just like another one of these sort of uh, more modern tools that allows you to generate a full list of all your dependencies and the things you need to care about security-wise. But there's a lot more to it as well. There's like different frameworks, like the Salsa framework and other things too that you can look into. But basically, I think the TLDR here is... As a developer, you just want to do your best to build things securely, and you don't know what you don't know. And the real thing you need to do is just pick any sort of tool and use it to lint your code, find issues early, then you don't have to worry about them later. For the security teams and people making the policies of organizations, they need really good tools and insight to aggregate these things at a high level and help figure out what do we prioritize on the security front? Because the truth is, there's security issues in pretty much everything at every level of the stack. There's no way to fix all of it. And so you have to be really you know, laser focused on the things that are mission critical and will actually impact people. And so that's what their job is. We provide tools for both of those audiences. And that's a big part of the solution, I think, is just bringing those people together and helping them be successful. Yeah. I do think it's important to recognize that like there probably is no way to fix 100% of it. Right. Like you want to do your best and certainly fix all the things that are known vulnerabilities. Like it's, there's no way an individual developer could have predicted the open SSL stuff. Right. Like that would have been impossible. There's varying levels of complexity. And when you get deep into the stack, it gets very complex. And even the most sophisticated of tooling, even chat GPT, if that's something you really like, right, like isn't going to be able to identify these things in any sort of meaningful way. That being said, like at Sneak, our whole philosophy is make things easier for people. So we're rapidly approaching a world, I think, in the next few years where, you know, you have to like, let's talk about GitHub for a moment because everyone knows GitHub. So stage zero of security, like awareness as a developer is like you put a project on GitHub. Stage one of awareness is you plug in Dependabot. So it keeps track of your dependencies and tells you when things you're using are out of date or have an issue or whatever. Stage three is you start using tooling like Sneak that not only looks at your dependencies, but like everything, the custom code you built, your container, like all that stuff. Stage four is you get to the point where, you know, you're using tools like Sneak to help fix things automatically that you're doing. So Sneak has the ability to send you a pull request to fix code that you've written. If you're using our editor plugins, it can say, hey, 
here's an issue. Do you want us to automatically fix this? Yes or no. And so it'll go ahead and fix that for you. Stage five, which doesn't exist yet, but will probably exist in the future, is having autonomous agents that will go in and make full pull requests and push things to the right branches to fix issues when they're created. So we're rapidly approaching a world where the tooling is getting better and better and better, and people have more and more these helpers for these low-hanging fruit things. But you still have to be conscious of these broader things that all these tools in the world aren't going to be able to catch. So you think we're moving in the direction where these autonomous agents, right, which we might call AI, right, can fix your code for you. Absolutely. 100%. Do you have any experience with or perhaps even just like fears about people poisoning AI models? Like I've heard a lot of talk around that as a new threat vector that, that didn't exist before. I think the three big threat vectors in AI in particular are the low-hanging fruit is prompt injection. If you're building a product where you're exposing any sort of input or logs or anything really to AI engines, like the risk for prompt injection is like 100% right now. The second issue is poisoning a model. So that means finding ways to basically trick the people creating the models into doing the wrong thing. And that's actually, I think, very hard. The third option is poisoning the data sets that models train on. And that's something that a lot of people are more concerned about, especially with custom models. Like it's not really a problem for tools like OpenAI and other things that are scraping large amounts of the internet to do their training, because the amount of effort you'd have to put in to rewrite like 90% of the internet with like false information to actually influence OpenAI is like, it's not possible. But if you're a company building, like training your own models from your own data sets, then that is a real risk. And so you have to carefully evaluate that. And the moat in AI companies today, I think, is primarily based not around like what models and companies you're using. It's much more based on what data sets you have and how accurate are they? Like, do you have a high degree of confidence that the things you're using to train your model models on are accurate and high quality? If not, that's going to cause a lot of issues in the future for people, I am certain. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it already pops up now and again, right? With like hallucinations and weird answers to things. And, you know, not, it's not perfect. The stuff with agents, I think, is particularly interesting because as you start to use like large language models to generate things for you, you can feed them and chain them together and give them access to your AWS credentials and ask them, hey, ChatGPT, I would like you to generate an AWS command line that's going to take this current folder with a node project and deploy it to Elastic Beanstalk for me. Like, please do that. Then you're going to take that and you're going to EXCC it on your shell and you're going to run this thing, right? There's a lot of security considerations there. And I think there's a lot of cool things you can do with it for sure, but also it's ripe for abuse. And there's a lot of security research teams right now, including Sneak, that have been doing some really innovative research on finding and helping to prevent those issues for people. That's cool. Do you think that AI is like, on its way to actually being useful in the context of your docs and developer resources? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I can tell you a little bit about some of the cool internal projects we've already built using these things over the last year or two. You know, one of the first things we built, I'll say, and this is, I'm going to start with a broad thing, I'll get into the docs bit, but one of the first things we built was something to do all of our event promotions. So previously, what we would do is we actually had a DevRel intern who would spend about, you know, half every single week doing promotion for upcoming events. And so if we were going to speak at an, an event, run an event or whatever it was, we would find that list of events. We'd find who's speaking, what the date and time is, like what the abstract is for the event or whatever it is. 
and we might send, you know, write a custom tweet and now get sent out like a month before the event, then maybe a week before a different iteration of it. And then the day of a different iteration of it, you know, to promote these things. Now we do something like 50 events per month or whatever. And some of them are community events. Some are like first hand events, whatever it is, but that's a lot of work. What we started doing is, you know, we use Asana internally for task management. And so we started just parsing our event pages out on meetup.com and other places, getting all that information, feeding into, you know, open AI essentially, and just saying, Hey, we want to create a blurb that's going to be promoted the month before we take that information and we dump it into an Asana board with the time it's going to go live, the full description and what channels it's going to go live on. Then that same intern who goes in and takes a look at it, approves it, maybe tweaks some things here and there, and then drags it into the done column. And that triggers another automation, which then takes that and actually talks to the social media APIs behind the scenes to queue everything up appropriately. So that was one use of AI we deployed long time ago that saved more than 20 hours a week of like a human's actual work. And now that person's much happier working on much more fulfilling things, which I feel very good about. That's awesome, by the way. I would love to steal that workflow because, I mean, we have a similar problem, right? Where there's just like such a high volume of events that you can't, like there's no way you have like the mental energy or creativity to write something interesting about all of them. A hundred percent. And then in terms of documentation, so we've also built out some tools to help us with our technical blogging. We actually built our own internal platform called Content GPT that helps with that. It's super sophisticated and I can talk or show that if you want. But on the documentation side, that's actually something we're working on right now with our docs team. And I did a lot of experimentation with this. And what I found is that for Sneak in particular, a lot of what we do around new features internally, you know, we build this feature and we have some API endpoints for it. And then outside of that, we then have some like design specs. Then we have like an internal Google doc that explains from the customer point of view, like what this problem this solves. So if I slurp all those things in to a large context window request, I can actually generate the type of user documentation we publish on our site. Today, that requires a lot of time and a lot of meetings because someone in our docs group will sit down with someone on the product team, on the engineering team, they'll look at the API endpoints. When the things aren't updated, they'll go in and try to force it for a while, but you're talking like weeks of human time to generate this, you know, somewhat straightforward document, right? And we are very close to approaching the point where we'll be able to almost fully automate that and just have human review to go in and clean it up for tone and to, you know, sanity check all the technical side of it. But it's definitely getting there. Like I'm a huge fan of the tools. What are you using specifically? Like, are you using just like a chat GPT, like, you know, open a window and feed this in? Or have you written like custom integrations to do this stuff? No, all of this is custom integrations with the underlying APIs behind the scenes. And we actually in DevRel have an operations team. So our DevRel org is fairly large, I think, compared to a lot of places. But we have a dedicated DevRel engineering operations team. And essentially, they're like an applied AI and automations team. And so what they do is they help us solve internal problems and things are going to save a lot of time. And the KPIs that team actually has are really cool. We have a KPI for how much cost savings our tooling is producing and also how much time savings they're producing across the org. And we actually track those two things as core KPIs and we measure them by how often is this automation running? How much human time does it save? How much cost does it save? And we literally just multiply it out for the cost of a year. And that's one of the main parts of our DevRel program here. It's very successful. I think it's probably something a lot of DevRel people wish they had. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I wish I could have done at prior companies in the past, for sure. I used to do a lot of it myself. Now we're very fortunate to have a couple of people there. But, you know, 
I think that's going to be a bigger thing in the future too, is having these like applied AI teams where people are solving problems using whatever tooling they can. It's a great type of position for these like generalist hackers who just have a deep interest and want to build and automate things and play around with stuff. It's, it's a super cool dev rally type role, I think. So we only have a couple of minutes left here. I always like to end these on kind of like a more general, I don't know, like worldview note. So are there any like developer call them creators, educators out there in the world beyond Sneak that you like have been following recently that you really look up to? Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Like I'm going to give a huge shout out to one of my extremely longtime good friends, Matt Mackay from Twilio, who now runs DevRel at Assembly AI. I really like their product. First of all, I used it in a hackathon recently myself and was very impressed. Super cool tool for transcribing audio and things like that. I'm using it in a lot of projects now, but also their YouTube channel is what I think the gold standard is for developer education in video format. It's like the absolute best, I think. So if you want to see how to do video really well, I think go to Assembly AI's YouTube channel, watch their videos. They're so good and so interesting and they're perfect length and they just, they nail it, I think. So huge fan of that. The also, user, a crap ton of views. They're fantastic. So shout out to Matt, who definitely is like the inspiration there. And that dude is just incredible. Going to the like more experienced side of things, I think that even though it's not as hip nowadays, Heroku, Heroku is like the very best example of developer experience you can get anywhere. I, to this day, do not think there's a single platform with better experience than Heroku. And if you think so, you know, fight me because I would love to see it. Basically, I think it's really great. So check them out for inspiration on UI and good patterns to just help people build things nicely. And then for documentation. You know, documentation can be done in a variety of styles. And so I'm hesitant to call out just one place. Like Stripe has some really good interactive documentation. Twilio has some really good interactive documentation. Like there's a lot of places to do it well. And for that, I think, you know, I'm going to cheat a little bit here, but there isn't a perfect answer because it's so dependent on your domain and like the types of things people are going to need to understand about the product that like, you know, maybe Stripe style isn't going to work for you because you're not firing off straightforward API requests. You have more complicated integrations, which is fine. So maybe you go a different approach, right? But look at all those places for inspiration and pull out the things you like the most and don't be afraid to copy. Copy the good stuff for sure. Awesome. Those are all great recommendations. So the question I always end on here, is there anyone out there like, you know, scientist, mathematician, tech person, that you wish you could like grab for a couple hours and just like pick their brain over lunch who you've never met? Oh my God, absolutely. So the my childhood idol growing up was always John Carmack, one of the founders of ID Software, the genius who wrote all these game engines from scratch. And the dude is an absolute legend. I would love to sit down and talk to him for like two hours and just ask him about like general programming philosophy stuff. I feel like he's one of the most interesting people who's ever lived in technology. Additionally, Rob Pike, the guy who created Golang, did a lot of work on original Unix, like the C programming language and other things. He's also an absolutely amazing engineer who's I'm just super inspired by all the amazing work he does. Similarly, Brad Fitzgerald, I think, from the Golang project, he created Memcached and a bunch of other things. Amazing engineer, super smart. Antirez, the creator of Redis, like that's his username. I think his real name is Salvador, I might be messing it up a little bit, but he's incredible. There's so many brilliant people out there. I would love to talk to all of them if I could. I feel like a lot of those are probably attainable for you. 
Yeah, I mean, I've tried some of them before. John Carmack is a hard one to lock down, man. If I could get him to speak at a conference one day, oof, love to do that. He's a busy guy, but he has a new VR startup or something, right? He left it, I think. He's actually working yeah. on generalized AI and artificial intelligence now. So he left his Oculus position about a year ago to work on that. And yeah, just super interesting, dude. Can't wait to see what he does next. Well, thank you so much, Randall. I really enjoyed the conversation. If folks want to find out more, we'll include some links in the notes here. But uh, really enjoyed this and uh, you know, excited to see what you uh, work on next. Sounds like some cool stuff coming down the pipe. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, John. And also, I just want to give a shout out to MLH because huge fan of your organization. And I think it's really inspiring for a lot of kids out there who are building things and getting into engineering and building stuff and just having a lot of fun. I think one of the best ways to learn is to just build stuff and meet other people that you admire and respect and want to hang out with more. And I can't really think of a better venue for that than MLH personally. So shout out to the work you're all doing because it, it makes a difference, you know? Thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, happy hacking, everyone. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Definitely subscribe for more in the future. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.